Welcome to Break Some Dishes podcast. We look outside the status quo of design where radical change and transformation are happening. We're talking to people who cross the boundaries of their disciplines to use design as a tool for change and disruption. People's health and safety are incredibly important, right? But it's amazing what materials and products we've allowed into our bodies and our environment that are toxic and harmful, some in the name of safety. One example, flame retardants. For many years, they were known to have very harmful chemicals, but were still applied to everything from children's pajamas to carpet to mattresses and couches in the name of keeping us safe. And even when they were banned for pajamas, they were still applied to crib mattresses for many years after. And now, after so many decades, they've built up in the environment and are still found everywhere. Last week, I tuned into a talk and a panelist noted a report that stated for the first time in the history of its survey that people were citing environmental health and not human safety as the main reason they were opting for non-toxic products. This is significant because it means people are recognizing that we are part of an ecosystem. What's good for the environment is good for people and vice versa. It's a huge shift. When we challenge what's accepted and the status quo, what's put in front of us, not just because it says it's good for us, doesn't mean it is. We can gain these insights. We should all become master sleuths and always ask questions. Our guests do this on a daily basis, and we hope to gain insight from their stories so we can better serve ourselves, our community, and our planet. Thanks for joining us as we break some dishes with our guest today. I'm Verda Alexander. And this is John Strasner. And today, Verda and I are going to be talking to another really good friend of mine, Jane Abernethy. I've known Jane from her days as a product designer. Jane is a hugely talented and thoughtful designer. When Jane was part of our design studio, I remember having conversations with her about how much she hated plastic. One of her primary objectives was to challenge every piece of plastic that went into our product. At the time, I didn't truly understand her disdain for plastic. I didn't fully realize where that piece of plastic might end up or what was destroyed in creating it. Jane was ahead of her time when it came to understanding the true impact of using plastic. And today, Jane is the Chief Sustainability Officer for Human Scale Corporation, a Manhattan-based manufacturer of ergonomic workplace tools. One of Jane's first accomplishments in her new role was to lead Human Scale to being the first manufacturer in the commercial furniture industry to achieve the living product challenge. This is where a company is able to achieve a net positive impact with a product. It's a lofty achievement, and we'll be breaking dishes with Jane today to see what it takes to get a company to net positive, where they actually make a bigger handprint than they do a footprint, which means they're fixing stuff, not just making it less bad. So let's break some dishes, Jane. Yeah, John, let's break something or fix something or blow something up. What do you think, Jane? You ready to break some dishes with us? Thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, Jane, I'm super excited to meet you. There are so many things that we have to talk about. I don't even know where to start. So when I first met you, you were a designer in the Human Scale Design Studio. I started off as a designer, an industrial designer, so designing products. And I love designing products. I love being a designer. I love drawing and imagining how the world could be and understanding what the essence of a problem is and how to really find a good solution to that. 
Um, and when I got into design, even like early on when I was studying, I was always thinking about this is going to be a product that goes into mass production and it'll turn into waste at some point or it's going to, you know, what's going to happen with it? Am I just kind of making more things to be out in the world? And then I had this terrible idea that if I did a really good job and I was good at designing, then more people would want these things. And then there'd be more garbage eventually in the world. Even as early as trying to decide what I should study in university, uh, that was a, a dilemma in my mind. Is like, should I actually go into that? And then I realized that if I did, I would be making some of these decisions that get repeated thousands of times a year, hundreds of thousands of times, maybe millions of times a year in mass production. So I could choose, as a consumer, I can choose to use like a glass bottle, I'll buy a glass bottle of Coke or a plastic bottle or maybe a, you know, a, an aluminum can. As the designer designing that bottle, I could potentially choose what kind of plastic might be used, the shape I might you know, design could affect how much plastic is needed. You know, you add 1% more plastic and you repeat that millions of times a year, it adds up to a lot more. So then I thought, well, actually, maybe I should go into this and try to do my best to influence how things are made in mass production. And I had a very, you know, limited specific view of like, really, I was designing, but I would try to understand what would make products more sustainable. I worked at, you know, a couple of consultancies before at human scale. And um, I would always try to offer the client however many concepts, like 20 concepts, and, and present to the client, you're going to present your top three. And I would always try to make those the most sustainable three to kind of influence how what the final product was going to be like. And at that time, there no one was really asking me for sustainable design. It wasn't really part of the, the ask at the time or part of the brief. Uh, then working at the Human Scale Design Studio, being an in-house design studio, I had a lot more freedom to be kind of more vocal about how I thought the product should be. And so I was quite vocal about um, sustainability and that we should be making sustainable choices and would make that that opinion known. <laughs> kind of what, was the, what was the pushback you got right off the bat? Did you get pushback or did everybody embrace that? On the one hand, not not everyone was aligned on what it means to be sustainable and which way we're going to be sustainable and what that looks like. So I think on the receiving end, for them, it might have seemed like coming out of left field and like, why would you be asking for this? Or why should I not do that? It wasn't, we weren't kind of all on the same page as to like what might be considered a, a better choice from a sustainability point of view. Then there is also extra consideration does take more time to work through every project, you know, everyone's working as fast as they can. They're under a lot of pressure to get products out as quick as possible. And then cost and time are always a very big part of it. So sometimes the more sustainable option can be more expensive or it can take a little more time to find materials that are usable and may, may not be more expensive, but you've got to do more research and more looking into it. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily make a project easier. <laughs> so that's probably the, the largest pushback was probably that. I had a number of you know, engineers and designers who were interested, but would say like, well, I just have to get this done by, you know, X amount of time. And, and I just can't stop and think about that. So it wasn't systematic in the way that everyone had to stop and think about it. When did you, when did you feel, or did you ever have that moment when you felt you got people over the hump and everybody was processing design under that lens yeah, that came a little later after I had transitioned into focusing exclusively on sustainability. So that I went from being in the design studio at HumanScale, I was asked to take on a sustainability project of getting a certification, which the certification itself wasn't 
and you know, going through an audit is doing a lot of paperwork that okay. wasn't really exciting. But I saw that as an opportunity to grow sustainability within the company and try to influence how the company operates. And so I thought if I can expand on that, that would be exciting and, and interesting, an interesting challenge. One of the first things I did when I kind of transitioned to focusing on sustainability was to create a design for environment program. And it really happened to align. The timing was very great because at the same time, we were setting up a stage gate program, um, which for folks who are not, who don't already work in this way, just at every stage, whether you're at your concept stage, you would have your concept. And then there's a gate review so that you can go on to the next stage, which might be, say, design. And then you, after you finished your design, you'd have a gate review where a, a number of different departments would approve and say you've, you've met the criteria to go on to the next stage, which might be, say, engineering. And so these just, departments were, so these were like financial, these were design, legal, these were... Um, quality, yeah, exactly, and, all and the different departments. It, there was never sustainability that was a part of this review, but that's where you were trying to... Exactly. So as these reviews were setting up, it was right when I was setting up my department and I just started from the get-go with, you know, that being one of the criteria that all the designers and engineers had to work towards and make sure that they had met the criteria. And since I was a designer for so many years, I understood at which stages you could ask for what kind of actions to be taken. At the very beginning of a project, you have blue sky, you've got lots of freedom to choose any solution possible. There's lots of things you can do at that stage. Later on, when you're engineering a project, so many things have been defined, it would be ridiculous to try and rethink things at that point because it's ineffective, it's costly, it frustrates everyone. But that's the point where you can really hone in on what is the exact material you're going to use. You said you're going to use nylon, but which grade of nylon? Who are you going to get it from? How is it going to be shipped? Those kind of detailed things. There's no there's no use in trying to dig into that at the very beginning when you haven't defined all these things. So I, I kind of had a good understanding of how the product development process works and mm-hmm. could know which things we should focus on in on which at which stage. And so that was great because that was when they rolled out the stagegate process that all of our design engineers use. Now, it, it was just sustainability was one of the things that was there right from that that point. And so then we did a number of trainings. We continue to do trainings with our, you know, designers and engineers, but our head of engineering at the time was quite supportive. Um, And so if we had the criteria and sustainability, he would make sure his engineers understood that that was equally important to qualities criteria, to legal criteria, to all the other criteria as well. So from really pretty early, I would say in my uh, work as a sustainability person, that was one of the first things was to influence how the design team operated. I'm curious, I'm a business owner myself, and I've heard you use the words thrive in a lot of your interviews. And I'm so conflicted between the company's goal to make profits and grow, and then to balance sustainability and, and doing the right thing. And I have I recently read a book it wasn't very good, but but it had some interesting points about. It's called, it was called. We Grow. like to recommend books that we hate. In this <laughs> I actually have this other the other book that you that you mentioned in another interview. Hopefully, we'll get to that too. Grow the pie, where if your company's focused on purpose, profits will come. How did you balance that at human scale? So those are interesting. Like if we had a Venn diagram, there would be some overlap, and then there would be not overlap. Of course, when you have things like cost reductions and trying to use really cheap materials that are include toxins and pollute a lot, that's where it's going to not overlap. But what I've found is 
again, this comes kind of from being a designer and that creative thinking and creative problem solving is that the, the immediate solution is usually very costly and difficult to implement. And that's why no one does it. And I think, you know, a lot of folks stop at that and say, oh, we can't do it. But I have um, just really used tenacity to like the fullest extent and stayed in the position of like, okay, we haven't solved that problem yet. We will. We're just going to find a solution. And a lot of times that's meant being very creative and how we approach these and really understanding the essence of the problem. I'm going to use an example of stain-resistant coating on our textiles, where when we did a deep dive into our product ingredients, and we pay a lot of attention to make sure these ingredients are good for people and the environment, and we dig down to every ingredient in every single material that's used to make every component of the product, we found that there was a stain-resistant coating on our textiles that was a PFAS sometimes called PFC, uh, perfluorinated compound. That's kind of technical. Most folks are not necessarily familiar with the different chemistries, but the most common household name of this might be Teflon. So folks might be aware that they don't want their Teflon pans to flake off and stuff. So that those kind of things we were finding that that coating was used as a for stain resistance on textiles that's still very commonly used. We got our supplier to make a version with no coating on it, and we tested it with the standard stain test. And then we looked at all the options for alternative coatings. Some of them didn't adhere to the textile itself. It was very expensive. The suppliers were telling us, well, we can develop new chemistry for you. It'll cost like several million dollars and take, you know, five years to do it. And, you know, this is the way we would approach it. And, and that was kind of like the standard way of looking at it. And then we started asking ourselves, how long does that coating stay on the textile? And we knew that our textiles were very durable. And we, there's a standard test industry to test durability of textiles, which is the Weizenbeek test, and they rub two pieces of textile together to see when it wears out. And the number of rubs that you have, the higher the number, the more durable your textile. So our textiles were lasting to around 150,000 double rubs. And the industry standard is about, what, 30,000 double rubs? I think so. I think so. So we had very durable textiles, which we're very happy with. We want our products to last and stay looking and feeling just like new for as long as possible. But we did also develop a new test with the government lab to stop the Weizenbeek test periodically and then also do the standard stain test alongside so you can sort of see when that coating is rubbing off. And we found the coating is rubbing off. All of our textiles performed slightly differently, but most of them, it was around 5,000 double rubs. You know, when you think about it, that could be depending how often you sit in sand and what you do with your product, but it could be a number of months before that's gone and not even on the product. So you have a chair that you're expecting is going to last 10 years. You've, 15, you've got yep. stain resistance. Mm-hmm. So now you're hoping the cushion is going to last 15, but you basically worn the, the, this, this PFC laced coating. You've worn it off in a period of six months and where the hell does it go? Mm-hmm. It's not on the chair anymore. Where where do, where the hell is it? Mm-hmm, exactly. Like it could How be turning into dust, potentially getting on people's hands if you're eating. You maybe be ingesting it. You could be, be taking inhaling it, home? it. Exactly. It could be sticking to your clothes, getting in your wash. So that when we realized that it was coming off like that, we realized that um, it was really important to not put this on our products anymore. But the other thing we also noticed is we went to our quality team and asked them, you know, do we have issues with products coming back after a year or six months or two years of because of stains? And we didn't have a record of that. So we thought it's interesting that this 
coding that we hadn't asked to be on the product. It was just a standard industry. This is how you finish a textile. They, they didn't even ask us if we want it because it was so commonly just done. And we um, paid for it. You paid for it. It cost money. Well, I would assume any extra thing you have to do, right. they have to send it from the mill out to somewhere else to code it and get it back. Yeah. So, you know, that, that must cost something. And we found that it, in practice, it might have provided some functionality on day one, but that functionality was long gone in not very much time. And there was no problem. So we stopped putting any of these coatings, any perfluorinated compounds on the textiles. That's now almost four years ago. And we have not had complaints about stains on the textiles. We haven't and, had any. And how long were you making chairs before you tapped the brakes and said, hey, what, what, hmm, I wonder what, go, hmm. what is this? I wonder if it's working. Uh, do we need it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. How and the whole industry is still does, it's still, so, as far as I understand, the standard. This is mm-hmm. what blows my mind is human scale is an outlier company in the sense that they actually decided we're going to actually look and see what in the hell is inside our product because people are sitting on it all day long. They're working at it all day long. They're exposing themselves to it all day long. Don't you think we ought to know what the hell is inside of it? So Mm. that's amazing. It's almost like you have to be a detective. <laughs> yeah, forensic forensic product design. Do you, do you think that doing this extra sleuthing and and improving what you offer has opened doors or created opportunities or brought you business that you might not have already gotten? Yeah, definitely. And and then just sort of your original to. My very long example back to your original question was was when we looked at making the change, it wasn't more expensive to not have a coating on. I believe we could have negotiated a price reduction from our supplier because of that. So, so there's a certain amount of sustainability things that are going to find like sustainability um, issues where we're going to solve them and it's going to become more efficient. Our waste reduction, for example, we started recycling a whole lot more material. We found it saved our company money, not um, in the whole grand scheme of the whole company. It wasn't a major thing, but the thing is that it it actually brought a positive balance to the company as opposed to something that would be cut if there was ever any sort of financial issues. Those kind of programs get cut if they're costing money. So I, I have found that there's a certain amount of sustainability, which just makes sense. You start to use your resources better. You start to be more efficient Then you should be you know, saving money. And often those are quite in line with the financial goals. Then there's also the other part of it, as you mentioned uh, just now, where you align with certain customers and other customers start to realize that you stand for something better, that you have a better product and are drawn to your product because of that. And I, I have had people ask me, like, what about you know making more disposable products that way you can sell more of them? And I've actually kind of seen it go, it can go either way. You can make really disposable products and then you sell more of them. We've kind of gone the other way where our products are long lasting, high quality. And then we actually, from what I can see, we see repeat business and customers when they're expanding, when they're growing, because they, they know they can rely on our products. Probably in the long run, our customers are better off because if you buy a chair that's going to last a year or two and then you replace it, what, seven times over 15 years, that's going to be more expensive than just buying a good chair to begin with. So I think it's kind of a win-win. And I think we can sometimes, you know, some of our customers can kind of see that long-term perspective as well. It's a longer-term game. In the very short term, we would, I think, make more money, but then we would, I think we've instead built a business where in the longer term, we'll be sort of growing and expanding because people understand they've got a higher quality product. 
Yeah, and I, and I think too, you know, Human Scale has always endeavored to create classic design in what they make. And so, if I'm if I come across a Freedom Chair at a in a yard sale, I'm going to grab it because that's that's a great piece, and, and that goes a long way too. Now, you you did something uh, with Human Scale that I think very very few people have been able to do. And you really tackled the red list problem. And we're, we're talking about how PFCs and stain resistant coatings, that, that's such a lethal toxin. Can you talk to us a little bit about this red list for people who don't know what it is and the impact that it has? And then the challenges that you, I mean, you've got products at human scale that are red list free, which is kind of crazy to think about. It starts with a big picture thinking that we, you know, realizing that we spend most of our time in the indoor environment. I think the EPA estimates it to be over 90% of our time indoors when we consider sleeping, working, commuting, all the time we're spending indoors. And when we do, we are mostly surrounded by manufactured goods, manufactured materials. And those materials, you know, are each made of a number of different ingredients. There's a recipe to make up each material. They're intended to stay in the products, but of course, we find over time they don't. Anytime we've seen like the stairs worn down or something that's worn down, it became little bits of particles that were then dust. And, and those, those particles, you know, if we're surrounded by these materials, it's not too surprising. We start to see them in our bodies affecting our health. We do see them everywhere from you know, people in the far north or babies who are not yet born. We already see these chemicals in their bodies. So it's really something that's very prevalent and so they, when they start to affect our health, we realize that it's very important not to be using these materials and surrounding ourselves by these, 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 these chemicals. Some of them are a lot higher concern than others. And so there's a list of the highest uh, chemicals of concern brought out by that list is put together by um, the International Living Future Institute called the Red List. There are a number of different lists. In, in Europe, they tend to um, follow their the, uh, reach list, list of uh, substances of very high concern. So there are a num- there are a few different sort of um, lists of the worst possible chemicals. They overlap with each other um, for the most part, but kind of imperfectly. So some different authorities have kind of sl- slight varying opinions. There are a few chemicals where they really um, are understood. You know, mercury, formaldehyde, asbestos. Those chemicals are pretty understood to be not good for human health across the board in all the different lists. But the the red list is kind of a one that's focused on the building industry. So we evaluate our products to make sure that they don't have any red list ingredients. And this means going back to our suppliers and their suppliers and their suppliers and going through the supply chain. Because usually if we buy a component, the folks who sell us that component usually have, have shaped the material, like they may have injection molded a, or, or shaped a screw, but they weren't the, um, the smelter actually making that aluminum. You know, they are not the formulator making that nylon. So you have to get deep into the supply chain before you get to the formulators of the actual material to find out what are the ingredients in that, that material. And then convince them piece. that they should tell us for every piece. For, ev- for every part. Every- so mm-hmm. you have a chair that's red list free. How many parts are we talking about? I think, I don't even know the number of parts, but I know that for the smart chair, for example, I think it was 215 different recipes that we had to gather for the 215 different recipes right Mm -hmm. and then each recipe you've got to go through that's where you've got a 
a, a chemical engineer or a scientist, right? Who reads each ingredient in that, in each of those 215 recipes and then finds that ingredient that needs to be removed. And then, and then you have to figure out, is there a replacement? Is there an alternate? And yep. then can we go to that supplier and ask them to switch it with the healthy ingredient? And then you get samples and then you have your engineering team evaluate whether it'll actually work because we still have a 15-year warranty on our chairs, for example, and we, we're not going to make them, uh, you know, they have to meet that, that same warranty, uh, the same quality. How do you not look at this task, right? Just what we talked about, 215 recipes, looking at every ingredient, understanding where the toxins lie, figuring out if there's an alternate, having a conversation with a supplier who may or may not give a crap uh, whether or not there's a toxin in there. How do you not look at this task and say, ah, not today. (laughs) Yeah. mm, There's a lot to be done here. I'm just going to, you know what? We're not... I think most manufacturers do that and say, ah, okay, so we got some PVC. Ah, Hey, you know. That's a good question. I think it partly comes down to the way I see things and the way I work um, is probably I didn't think it was going to happen today. I probably thought we'd start somewhere. And I guess, like, again, it comes down to tenacity and really staying in that position of we're just not done yet. And you haven't given me the answer yet, but we will keep asking you and keep reminding you and keep on you. And we'll escalate this as we need until we do get that answer. And for some suppliers, it's taken two years to get the information from them. But that being said, I do try to look at things in a systematic way so that as I was going through and getting the information, and as my, you know, I have this material scientist on my team, and he, Luke, is, Luke's, uh, Joe, his name is, and he's excellent, and he, um, you know, reaches to the suppliers and gets all the information and evaluates it. As we did that, um, if we just did them one by one as single unique um, cases, we would have a crazy amount of information and a lot of confusion and frustrated people. So what I've really tried to do is build in systems where this can be as feasible and palatable as possible. So, so that means like starting early by when we first start talking to a supplier that's going to quote with us, we say, hey, you're going to quote, we're going to expect this for, you know, timeline for delivery. This is what we expect from quality. And we're going to ask for our material ingredients. So from our first conversations with the supplier, we get them aware this is going to be coming. Then we have our quality team and our supply chain team trained on this is important to us so that they're also highlighting this. This is important. Um, and so now as we go through, our suppliers understand that this is what's going to be asked. Our design engineers know that they're going to have to have all the ingredients of their product. If they design a new product, all the ingredients are going to be needed before they can get the, through that final gate to get into production. It's, we, have all, we have built up this, the elements that help it be a systematic ask and not just me reaching to a supplier by myself, sort of trying to swim upstream. And that's what I would say has made it quite feasible now that as we launch products, they have those those labels. Like we just launched um, some panels for, for you know the return to office, um, and they they're just launched and they already have those ingredients labels. They're red list free. Um, that's because that's part of the whole process. And so approaching it as a system and kind of finding out how where the those leverage points where we really need to to rely on and and relying on those has just made it. Now it's quite feasible for us to do it. It changed how we 
do business. Um, but now it's sort of the new norm for us. So I would say, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that we've done. I also don't want to make it sound like this is a completely impossible task for any manufacturer to do. It does mean taking a mindset that you're going to do it and having conversations early on, setting things up to have it done, but it's totally possible to do. At my firm, we, at the beginning of this year, we actually started looking at the red list and, and other lists as well and trying to formulate some sort of policy specification. But it's, mm-hmm. it, it, and I assigned a small task force to it, but it was so overwhelming and so difficult to just choose the right thing. What advice would you give a design firm on how to, how to tackle that or how to start specifying? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I think aiming for perfect out, out of the gate is maybe um, just asking for failure. Like I, it's potentially understanding that there are going to be steps along the way and that you'll get to perfect if you can go through the process to get there. Maybe have a, a plan or a vision of how you want, where you want to be, but what's going to happen in the meantime. And that's where transparency is really important because some of those steps might be, for example, um, maybe you choose three or five chemicals. You're like, okay, we're not going to specify PVC or formaldehyde or or certain what like maybe there's a few where we say okay we're just not going to specify those and you can get the declare labels and HPDs and see what's in the products or you can ask the manufacturers and then that sends a signal to the manufacturer that that's not wanted in products that is so powerful um, and then you know maybe a next step might be to make to specify products that are compliant with the Healthier Hospitals Initiative. That has maybe a half a dozen or so um, chemicals of concern, not the full red list, but but again, it, a lot of overlap there, and it's a good one where you can find the products because you know you know the, the the HHI has a list of products, and you can at least understand that it's a better than average. Then you can know you can look for ones that have declare labels. That might be another one where it's like if it has a declare label. Whether it has a red list ingredient or not, already being transparent is, means that manufacturers in the game and working on understanding what's in their products, it's sending that signal to the manufacturer. So there, there are maybe some steps that you know along the way between a perfect, between you know status quo and perfect that could be identified um, and taken on in a, in a systematic way would be you know quite helpful because then it gets everybody. You know, understanding we're all on the same page, we all have to do kind of the same thing. And manufacturers then get a very consistent signal as to this is what the market is asking for. Talk about declare labels for a minute, Jane, for people who, who may not know what those are. So declare labels and HPDs um, are kind of like food labels. You know, we all have nutritional labels on our food that tell us what are all the ingredients. Um, declare labels would do the same thing. They tell How you many calories are in seven Dorito chips, for example, because <laughs> that's one serving size. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so a declare label would tell you all the ingredients uh, that go into the product. And um, if there are any red list ingredients, those chemicals of highest concern, they'll, they'll be in red. If it's a, concern, a chemical that's of not of a concern, then it would be in you know, black, the standard black text. And if it's a chemical that... Um, maybe it's of concern, but there's like a reason, there's an exception made for it. Um, for example, in window shades, by law, they, like most of the code requires them to use a certain flame retardant, which is antimony, which is a red list ingredient, but they can't sell the product without, you know, it doesn't meet code if they don't have that in the product. So there's an exception made for that, and that's in yellow. Um, so it's, you can kind of, when, even if you're not a toxicologist or a chemical, you know, an industrial hygienist or someone with an expertise in chemistry, you can look at that and understand, 
you know, very quickly if there are red or yellow you know, sections highlighted and how much and, you know, and it basically you can have a sense of what's in the product. Then if you're someone with a little bit more interest, you can take a look through and understand, you know, is it, you know, a lot of PVC? Is it a lot of, you know, certain chemicals you may be looking to avoid? You can kind of look through if you have that option to do that. Um, I would highlight that these are self-disclosures as well. So the manufacturers do put them together and publish them um, through Living Future Institute, but they're not third-party audited. So if you see one that has like five ingredients, you kind of might have to wonder whether that's the full, whether that manufacturer has really dug in. And if you see one that has like a hundred ingredients, you're like, okay, that probably they dug in pretty deep. There's sort of a story that we tell in the um, world of chemical disclosure about kind of when you start off, you look at an Oreo cookie and you say like, oh yeah, there's just two ingredients. There's like the cookie and the white. And that's what you put on your label. And then you dig in, you sort of get schooled and realize people tell you like, no, that's not how it is. And you're like, oh, that cookie has all its own ingredients. And yeah. and there's a, some sugar that's sprinkled on it that also has a coating or whatever. And there's a in, there's a recipe for the white and you have to get all the ingredients for those. So, so generally you want to be yeah. able to see ones that have good long list of ingredients on them. Oh, it's complicated. <laughs> I want to go back to this idea of stuff. My, my son is interested in fashion design, but he's conflicted because he sees that industry is very wasteful and, and creating a lot of stuff that's just going to end up in the landfill. And you talked about your chairs lasting longer and I think that's great, but eventually they might go get to the landfill as well. How are you tr looking to create a circular economy within your company, and and what would that look like for the end of life of these chairs? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we've been digging into this for a number of years now. Um, for three summers in a row, we had interns who had this task of calling recycling facilities throughout the country to say like, I have five of these chairs. Will you take them? I have, you know, just theoretical, like sort of understanding, like who's going to take what kind of material, how likely is, is it, you know, to have certain different things recycled? And then how is that changing over time? So if we think our chairs are going to last 15 years, we're using certain plastics now, what is the recycling industry going to be like in 15 years from now? Like so these are some things we're kind of guessing. That's one way we've dug into it. Another area we've dug into um, kind of stemmed because we did a we had a chair where we literally had it molded into the bottom of the chair to um, send this back to us or to I can't remember what the wording was, but like if you wanted to um, send us to re recover the chair, you should phone this number. And we got zero phone calls, and so that you know it's been on the market for I don't know eight years or so like it's been long enough that somebody should have disposed of one at some point <laughs> right so test yeah test. clearly that doesn't work you know <laughs> so, nobody picks that chair up and looks underneath them and that's the that's the mm. result yeah well what we found and we started talking to a lot of our, our customers and um uh, you know some of the the project managers and the facility managers is when folks are emptying out a space to renovate and they're getting rid of material they don't necessarily have the bandwidth. I mean, when you're creating a project, you have someone as a project manager tracking every single bit of material, making sure it's going to come in, contacting that manufacturer, you know, making sure it's going to be delivered at the right time. They don't have that same level of, of uh, you know, resources available to do that for the decommissioning of a project um, ever. And it was interesting. I even talked to um, the Department of the Canadian government that deals with all of their offices and they had tried a trial where they put barcodes on 
on everything within the office, including like the plants and everything, and try with the intention to try to reuse and properly dispose of everything. Um, and again, it was just sort of too much data and very different, you know, departments and companies and everything to have to try and reach out to. Uh, it's a whole, it would be as big of a project as kind of creating the space in the first place. So one thing we've been looking at is how do we look at it holistically? And if someone, how do we interface with our clients who may be renovating and try to help divert not just our products, but like cyclically, like as a whole, look at the whole space and try to um, better manage all those materials that are being removed at once. And we see a gap right now between folks who are able to do that and then the folks who have the projects. And the folks who are able to do that, they vary from city to city and they vary from size of project. Um, and what kind of materials it can take. So we've been developing relationships with those folks who who are able to responsibly um, handle material. A lot of times they'll donate it. They might try, you know, locally recycle it, which varies from city to city, um, waste energy potentially. And then worst case would be, you know, some of it might end up in landfill, but at least you can try to reuse as much as possible. Um, and then we've been trying to develop those relationships so we can be a good resource to connect them to our clients um, and anyone who who might reach out to us for, you know, to, mm. to look for that information. That's been the best approach I've been able to come up with so far. But I do think, I mean, this area is not well solved. And so I do think there should be a lot of, you know, more in-depth and better thinking about how we handle circularity. I know a lot of folks talk about circularity and it's very exciting right now. I'm always a little bit skeptical when I hear it because I think like, you know, how different is that from what we used to talk about as recycling? Does it actually happen? You know what's happening in practice. It's a very exciting idea, but the diff, you know the distance between an idea and what happens in practice can be huge. And what matters is what happens in practice. So it sounds like we need to break some dishes there. That's just oh. the sound mm-hmm. the recycling and the and taking back. And I know the designer is long gone. Even if they write it into the furniture spec or whatever, mm-hmm. it's long gone when the project gets decommissioned. And it's definitely a problem. And I wonder this might be a good time to talk about. You mentioned this in an interview, one of your favorite books. And oh my God, I love this book. I cannot say his, the author's name, Giridas, I think. Um, but he talked. If about, this is audio, this is winners take all. I have a tendency <laughs> to do that, uh, connect the dots and think that everybody is following along in my mind, right? Um, winner takes all. And uh, I think one of the places where we could break some dishes with that is around regulation, right? And he talks about mm-hmm. how we've, We've really, in this neoliberalist uh, camp since Reagan, we've, we've lost our faith in government. And we've, we believe mm-hmm. that corporations and, and the elite will do the right thing. But, but a lot of things point to that not being the case. And they haven't in the past. Mm-hmm. Up until now, more and more, and more companies seem to be starting to, to do that. But um, government could really be the place where some of this stuff could happen. Have you... Have you track that or push for any of that yeah and that that's something as humans hasn't really uh, and i personally haven't really become involved in like trying to create regulations um um but that's but as you mentioned it like i do believe that that's probably the most effective way um well you think of like when was the last time you saw a new car for sale without any seatbelts like never you know it doesn't happen today because that's a that's a regulation you have to have seatbelts in a car to sell it you know, a new car that's being manufactured. Um, and so it kind of makes things happen across the board. Like, 
you know, Volkswagen was the outlier and breaking the regulation and they got a whole bunch of media and, you know, fines for breaking the regulation. It's yeah. just, just to show how effective the regulations actually are once you have them in place. But they can take a long time to get in place. Um, so, for example, we have like lead in gasoline. I think it took like 66 years between them finding, saying, okay, we know that this is causing human health issues. We have to take it out of gasoline. We create the regulation that was, became effective 66 years later. So, so they can take a long time to come into effect and the industry can push back. So one of the roles I can see companies having in that is to show that it's possible and um, that these regulations are feasible and reasonable to, to have. Like Interface, for example, recently pushed for recycling regulations in carpet against their own trade industry in California. Um, that's an example of a, of a company showing that this is possible to do. It's a reasonable ask of us. Our industry is going to fight against it, but it's a reasonable ask. Um, so, you know, with human scale, not using red list ingredients, we're showing that it's possible to understand, you know, all of the ingredients that are in our products to publicly disclose them, to eliminate the red list ingredients. We're showing that it's quite possible to do that. Um, so I think that it's a little bit of a chicken and egg in creating regulations. Yeah, that's obviously very complicated, but I liked the idea that we could at least send a signal that this is possible to do and a reasonable ask for companies. I think like you're leading the way. We can lead the way. Yeah. yeah. I think you've, and I think, Jane, what's happened here too is you've crossed a threshold from environmental responsibility to social accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I listen to what you're doing right now. And when we look at uh, federal regulation and lack thereof, in the chemical industry and what that does, right? So, you know, we have these ingredients that we know are harmful to human health, but because of the way the Toxic Substance Control Act was written back in 1976, the EPA is hogtied and can't really regulate the industry. And there's so much money in the chemical industry. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, but we've got so many lobbyists out there and we've got these chemical agencies that are out there trying to tell everybody why we need PVC and and all the good that can come from a toxic material like PVC. When we know it harms people, it harms humans uh, and animals, it harms the planet. Yet there we are. The, The federal government is allowing us to put that in product. And I think what ends up happening here, what we need to talk about is when people take on, and I'm going to say it, when people take on forensic product design like you did, and they, they decide to peel away the layers and figure out what the hell is in their product, it sends a message, but it also, there's a ripple effect here because if human scale stops buying PVC and design firms like O plus A stop specifying PVC. Other companies will say, well, then we better start having PVC free options here. Mm -hmm. And then what you're going to have, and we were talking about it with David Stover, someday, maybe we won't have these fence line communities that have Mm -hmm. oil refineries in their backyards and these mysteriously high cancer rates, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe someday, but, but because we don't walk by an oil refinery every day on our way home from work, or we don't walk by a Dow chemical factory every day on our way to work and smell the noxious fumes, right? Or a plastic manufacturer. (laughs) Exactly. And so I think that, you know, this is an amazing step that you've taken. And I think that you deserve, I mean, you've, you've gotten 
a lot of some really nice recognition recently for the work that you've done, right? I mean, you're a vice chair on the BIFMA Sustainability Committee. Um, you're a recipient of Women in Sustainability Leadership Award. You are on the board of directors for the HPD Collaborative. So you have a voice. Let's hope that it's being heard. You are, you are not a kind and gentle Canadian. <laughs> By God, you are a strong-willed, perseverant Canadian woman. And this is all good, but I think you know, the Living Product Challenge was something that probably helped you out a little bit as well here in terms of pursuing a certification that had definition and direction. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the environment and the social aspect, those used to be understood to be very different, kind of different thought process or just people would pay attention to one and not necessarily draw the connection. And in setting up our sustainability program within human scale, I had a number of different areas that seemed very different from each other that sometimes when I go to talk to folks, they didn't see what does this have to do with what you're doing or why does, you know, whether our workers have access to sunlight on a regular basis have to do with whether we have Chrome 6 in our products and what does that have to do with and how are these things kind of tied together? So it was really nice in pursuing the Living Product Challenge that it gave a a framework around how a lot of these different, in sustainability, there can be a lot of different ways of looking at things. And it gave a framework for kind of bringing them all together. It was also the first, and it's the only certification that requires manufacturers to give back more than, than we use. So for example, we have to create more renewable energy on site than we use to make the product. So we actually have to be a part of a positive change in the world. Then we, we do an accounting of all the impacts of ourselves and then our supply chain as well. And we calculate, for example, how much water is used, like what's the water footprint or the carbon footprint or the energy footprint and all the different footprints. For water, energy, and carbon, we have to account for our actions and our entire supply chain. And we have to create more good in the world than harm that was done from the manufacturing. Now, in some ways, that's an accounting exercise. But once you cross that threshold of of getting past neutral into creating more good, it changes who we are in the world. Because up until that point, you're looking at reducing, reducing, reducing the amount of harm you're doing. And then that's as good as it gets. You're going to be left with a little bit of harm Uh, hopefully as little as possible, but you're still going to be doing some harm in the world. You're just less bad. That's where I think it's really exciting, the idea that you could actually give back more than you take and you could leave the world cleaner than you found it or better off because we're manufacturing furniture. I love that idea. It's been so nice connecting with you, Jane. I think it's it's been so much fun. And actually... Talk oh, a little yeah. bit about NextWave. Because we, we really haven't talked about that. I'd love to hear you talk about it through your own words. In collaboration with NextWave, we get to meet with other manufacturers who are also trying to use ocean plastic, ocean-bound material, ocean-recovered material. Um, and that's been really interesting because a lot of them come from very different industries. And we can see where our experiences overlap or where we have had different experiences and we can kind of learn from each other in trying to set up this um, supply chain to source material that would otherwise be going to the ocean and do it in a responsible way. So this is one of the interesting things that we're right now working on with Next Wave is um, expanding our ocean plastic usage, but then the big part of it is evaluating the suppliers for social impact as we do that. Because of course, the, the, we want to have a benefit to the local communities where these plastics uh, you know, would be sourced from. 
And we find that there's these are informal work economies. They can kind of have to be a little bit different. So a, sort of a worst case scenario is we would hate to you know, pay someone to sort to bring us black plastic that we, we would then use as our input and to find that children are being taken out of school to go collect plastic because it's better for their family or it's financially interesting for their family. So these are the kind of things that can get a little bit complicated and we have to dig in pretty far to make sure that the impact we're having is uh, really going to be beneficial for the communities in the long run and that they're partnering with us and that they're, you know, the impact we think we should have is kind of what they see also. And and maybe sometimes our perspective isn't the one that uh, we learn a lot from them as to what they actually need and, and, so it's not just kind of going back there and making sure they're following our rules. It's really partnering with communities. And, and then how do we evaluate those suppliers in the communities to make sure that this is working in a, in a socially responsible way? What, are your, what is your prediction? I mean, as an industry, are we going to get on this red list uh, challenge? Are we going to see more companies that you know, really tackle the red list and, and get and stop using these toxins? I think so. I think it's um, becoming easier than it has been. I think especially for some folks who may have started looking at it five years ago, um, designers and architects who might have been looking at it and saying like, okay, I don't want to use toxic materials, but it was so hard to get the information five years ago. Um, there's been a lot of tools that have been developed. There's been a lot more sort of harmonization so that when people are talking about things, they're doing it in the same way and it avoids a lot of confusion. There's been a lot of work on the back end to make this a more feasible thing to do. So, And I see more and more companies you know, disclosing the ingredients. I think for HPDs, I think there's something like about 5,000 or so of them available. Declare labels are probably around the same amount. So so they're, you know, it's starting to become more and more common. And I just have to say, if if the designers want it to become more common, you got to let manufacturers know that. So that's, your ask is so powerful. If you ask manufacturers to change, if you ask manufacturers to step up, I mean, that's what we're responding to. So if you want to see things change, even the ask, if you ask for a declare label and they don't have one, but they get that ask again and again and again, then they will get one. And if you ask for it to be eventually very good quality, third-party verified declare label, that's what eventually will step up to do it. So your ask is very powerful. <laughs> Sounds like it's me. I think, oh I, think it, it, I think it is on you, Verda. And I, I, I've told design firms this before, Jane, and I want to get your opinion, but it is overwhelming, right? If you put yourself in Verda's shoes and Verda's trying to turn a, a barge around here in the middle of the river, um, and it, it does take some time, but there's a lot to it. But I believe it's like that, it's like that, that question, well, how do you eat an elephant, right? One, one bite at a time. And I used to use that in my presentations and then Bob told me not to because he's like, uh, don't talk about eating elephants. <laughs> So well, now I say, no, how do you cross the desert? One you don't step have to at a listen time. to you don't, you don't have to listen to Bob. He's just the owner of the, the owner of the company. But I, I think, in the perspective of a design firm, maybe you don't decide Monday morning that you're going to be PVC free, but maybe you decide Monday morning that there's a project that you're working on, and maybe you just want to have one PVC free conference room, mm-hmm. and you start there. And you learn how to design a PVC-free conference room, or you learn how to design a red list-free conference room. 
And that becomes a starting point and you learn how to do and it that's, on a I smaller have, scale. That's great. And then it, when you do that, if you notice what are the points of challenge, where was it difficult? Did it fall apart because it couldn't get the information? Did it fall apart? So now, you know, ask the information earlier. Any cha- huge challenge like that, if you start small, that's great. But then use that as a learning experience to build a system. Once it's systematic, it is so much easier. So you know, was it because the other designers and engineers didn't understand? Okay, maybe you need some training for the whole team to understand what you're up to. If you can build, if you can use that learning experience to then build systems, then it just, that's when it starts to become really powerful and you can really make big changes. Sorry to interrupt you there, John. I just got excited. No, <laughs> you, didn't. you didn't interrupt me at all. Well, I think that this has been a, an amazing conversation. And I told Verda before we talked to you that it was going to be amazing because I said, Jane is a designer. She is a creative. She gets it. And I said, you're going to have a connection with Jane. You guys are going to be umbilically connected here before the end of the the, the conversation. So this is great. Thank you, Jane, for giving us some of your time today. I totally feel challenged and I feel up to the challenge. And it's, I think before the end of this year, I'm going to implement something at O plus A. And, and, and like you said, start small and learn and learn and keep growing. It was so great to meet you and look forward to more conversations. Great. Keep on, keep it on, Jane. Keep on, keep on breaking dishes. That's all we can tell you. Keep on breaking dishes. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Take care. Talk to you later.